Welcome to the Harmony Church Podcast. For more information on service times, any upcoming events, or joining a life group, please check out our website, harmonychurch.nz. We really hope this week's podcast blesses you. We're going to go Chad. Chad, it's so wonderful, guys. Stand up right now and give a thunderous welcome to Chad Bensbridge. Nailed it. Nailed it. Thanks, guys. Why don't you thank the worship team for this evening? Great job, guys. Awesome. Well, <laughs> nine years in a row and Gideon's announcements are still one of our favourite moments. Um, okay, now listen, if I get invited back next year, do I get like a T-shirt or a watch or something? Ten years, come on. I'm going to get something. I'm like an honorary member, surely, of this church. And uh, you're not going to send me a tithing thing, are you? Like if I'm part of this church now, ten years. Oh, hey. Yes, that's exactly right. You can, uh, you can do that. The good thing about coming here is they put us in a nice hotel and, you know, I am one of those people, I do have to admit, we don't have sugar in our house very much, okay? But we have people come over and they want sugar in their cups of tea or whatever and we can't find any. What are we going to do? So every time I do stay in a hotel, I do have a habit, and my wife hates it, of grabbing a handful of the little single-serving <laughs> sugars that they put out, you know? But I'm not doing it this year because my luggage is full of toilet paper and so I've got no room for little sugars to take because we need toilet paper in Australia. And uh, so, never, <laughs> never mind. Um, so, yes, it is my ninth year, grace and glory, nine years in a row. Uh, how many of you were back in the school nine years ago? Oh, 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 yeah. Okay, cool. Well, in for a bit of a treat tonight, we're going to do a little bit of classic ched. Okay, a little bit of classic ched. But some of you don't know me. And so I can tell all the old jokes again and you won't even know, all right? So that'll be fun. But I do have to send love from uh, Rob and Glenda in uh, Christchurch, who are not with us this year, obviously, but a part of the Grace and Glory team and uh, a pivotal part. And they'll be here for the 10th anniversary next year. Is that confirmed? It's confirmed now. It's on the live stream. All right. (laughs) So... (laughs) They've, uh, they only just got out. I ministered with them in South Africa in September just a few months ago. And uh, with all the uh, issues in Hong Kong at the time there, with the protesting that was happening, they barely got out of the country. Rob had to push his way, literally through protesters, and, and get, on a, get on a bus and scoot to the airport. He actually got out of a taxi because it was stuck in traffic and walked some of the way with his luggage just to get on the plane. And so, uh, gee, anyway, a bit of disturbance. A bit of disturbance, but yet we... Move on. Soldier on. I was here last year for Mother's Day weekend and our church put up a photo booth uh, on the Sunday for people to get photos with their mums. And so my family took a photo and it looks like this. Do we have... uh, Do we prep for that? So if you don't know our family, that's what they look like 10 months ago. Uh, Jay, we've been married for 20 years, uh, had our 20-year anniversary last year. Jesse James just turned 18, so we have our first adult uh, child off. We haven't quite kicked him out of the house this year, as was one of my 2020 resolutions. It hasn't happened. He's decided to stay with us, uh, but he's doing university this year. Charlie and Ebony are in the middle there, numbers two and three, and uh, in high school together, and Zoe Joy uh, just turned four. So while we've got one starting uni, we've also got one uh, starting kindy uh, this year. So that's our awesome foursome. We live in a place called Victor Harbour. It's an hour south of Adelaide in South Australia. It looks something like this. It's a coastal, regional area, tourism and retirement area. And uh, we've been leading Bayside Church there for 17 years. We planted when we were, uh, well, 18 years this year. We planted when we were 23 years of age into Victor and have been leading there uh, for that long. And uh, church is going great. We were talking uh, over lunch the other day and uh, with um, Catherine and Tom and Gideon and Catherine and just saying it's kind of a great position to be in when one of your biggest challenges as a church is growth. 
don't take that for granted, okay? That is actually a great thing. And uh, so our church is growing and uh, both in our influence and our stature because growing in size uh, isn't the be-all and end-all. If bigger meant better, it would mean that obesity wouldn't be a problem, okay? But... um, Bigger doesn't necessarily mean bigger, but we grow in stature, we grow in wisdom, we grow in influence, and a natural part of that, when something's healthy, it grows well, okay, and it grows healthy, and so growth is a good sign, although it's not the ultimate sign, and then, of course, I am, uh, my wife's, because I did turn 40 uh, the year before last, and so my wife's been working on helping me get younger, of course, which is great, so I've got, you know, pants with holes in them now, how... I can't pull it off, can I? Am I, am I trendy? Am I trendy? But, you know, she even, did, she even signed me up to Instagram this year, finally, which is like, you know, like, no, I'm still old. Okay, never mind. But listen, I am desperately insecure, okay? And uh, I've only been in, on Instagram for a couple of months and I've only got like 100 people there liking me. So because, as you can tell, I'm desperately insecure, you need to look me up, all right? So look me up on Instagram and uh, you can check that out and whatever. Anyway, there you go. What's well, Instagram. <laughs> you can post me a letter, okay? <laughs> you can post me a letter. And, uh, and as you know, just a quick update, because you guys have been part of this journey for eight years now. Um, I uh, just this week, my new book has gone off to the editor who is starting to work on that. And uh, on Sunday night, tomorrow night, as part of our how-to series, I'm going to be preaching some of the subject matter of my book. It's on hermeneutics. It's on how to rightly divide the word of truth, correctly handle the Bible. And I'm going to be talking about some of that stuff tomorrow on how to study the Bible, how to read the Bible. I can't remember exactly what we called it. I'll work, my, I'll work the notes out tomorrow. And, um, but uh, we're going to do that, okay? And so we're going to be doing that Sunday night. It's going to be very exciting. And so that's off at the editor. And then the next stage for me, the whole idea of my book is to make it simple. That's apparently what I'm good at, okay? Making complex issues fairly simple and understandable and approachable. And I want to do that. So the next step for my book, I'm actually going to be approaching an artist or some illustrator and sketches, so I'm trying to work out now how to do that and uh, hopefully get some uh, an illustrator just to help make the book feel more approachable for people. So there you go. And, and uh, lucky me, we <coughs> invested our money in shares not that long ago, to, and so we'll see how much is left later. Okay. <laughs> we'll afford it. We'll somehow afford it. All right. <laughs> Why don't you... Uh, I should get started, shouldn't I? Why don't you turn to Mark, Mark chapter 4. Mike, Mike, Mark chapter 4. I'm going to read something that's well known, but I trust you today that you are students who are willing to see things with fresh eyes. Yes? We never stop being students. We never stop being students. We never stop learning. Some of us learn well conceptually. We, it helps us to hear something that's a concept and we go, ooh, I get that. Some of us learn well hands-on, practically. We actually need to do something, trial and error. And that's how we learn, okay? Uh, some of us learn well by observing, not maybe by listening or doing, but by observing, by watching. And God uses many means and mechanisms to teach us. And he gives us examples in the scripture and in life that we can learn from. Uh, you, like me, may be blessed to have good parents. And God gave them to you as examples to learn from. You may have very, very, very ordinary parents. You may have useless parents. You may have abusive parents. And life has put you in that situation, however you look at it, God, life, whatever, and you can learn from their example. God, life, the scriptures, gives us both bad examples and good examples that we can learn from. And the book, the New uh, Romans, I think it is, and also in Corinthians, Paul says, listen, a lot of the Old Testament stories and scenarios are written there as examples for us to learn from. The Bible is full of examples of real life people that we can observe and learn lessons from them. And today I want to share a lesson from some of the most influential people in Old Testament history. These men helped to shape the whole course or largely a huge story in Israel's history. Their story and the lessons that we learned from them were put into Psalms, they were put into parables, they were put into the epistles as a lesson to look back and remember these incredibly influential people 
And these are men, these names, that you know, if you're a student of the Scripture, you know very, very well. Of course, they include men like Shemua and Shaphat and Egal and Pathi. <laughs> they include Gedeel, son of Sodi, and Gadi, son of Susi. Oh, come on, people. <laughs> I thought you knew your Bibles. What are you doing? Emil, son of Gemali? Sethar, son of Michael? Oh, come on. Okay, you've got to follow me on social media and do my chronological Bible tutorials to read the whole Bible. I thought you guys knew the Scripture. How about uh, Nabi, son of Osvi, Gul, son of Maki? Come on, guys. You're making this hard. These are the most influential people in biblical history. They helped shape the course of Israel's history, the most pivotal moment in Israel's history, these men. How about these last two? Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. Oh, great. Great. So you know two out of 12. Why do you remember those two? Why did you forget? You have no idea. History records their names, but no one bothers remembering the other 10. Catherine shared this story this morning. She shared from it, and it is one of the most pivotal and poignant moments of Israel's history. And yet for most of us, the names of these incredibly influential men are effectively lost to history were it not for the fact that they are there in black and white in our Scriptures. This is, of course, the story of Numbers 13 and 14, the 12 spies that Moses sent into Canaan, into the promised land, into the land of abundantly more, the land of more than enough, the land that flows with milk and honey. And they realised when they went there, yes, it is the land of milk and honey. And as an old, old preacher used to say, wherever there was milk and honey, there are also bulls and bees. <laughs> so it's not a land of, of, of perfection, but it is a land of abundance. It's a land of prosperity. It's a land of great promises. But it's also a land of challenges. And they found that out. But these 10 men came back and by issuing a bad report that was not faith-filled report, not only did they fail to inherit these glorious promises, the abundantly more that God had promised for them, but they stopped a whole group of people from inheriting that as well. And I'm going to come back to that story later but first, we're going to read from the Gospel of Mark. And I'm going to read a well-known story, and I want to take you this morning on a journey, something that God taught me or revealed to me a number of years ago. God had put on my heart to preach from the parable of all parables. It's a parable that Jesus described as, if you don't get this one, you're not going to get any of them. So it's the parable of all parables. This one is really important. Yeah, Jesus said that. It's in the Greek. Yeah. <laughs> really, really important. And the Lord put on my heart to preach this one day. And I sat down and I read it. And I'm going to take you on that journey and show you how, what God showed me. Okay, Mark chapter 4. Don't switch off because you know the story. Let's read it together. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them in many things by parables, and in his teaching, he said this, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed as he was scattering the seed. Some fell on the path. Birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly. The soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched. They withered because they had no root. Other seed, number three, fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, and grew, producing a crop of multiplying 30, 60, or even 100 times. And then Jesus said, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's a story you know well, very simply. There is one kind of seed, one sower, but four different soils, and four different degrees of success or productivity, four different results. Every seed is the same. The sower is the same. And the sower is an equal opportunity sower. He did not discriminate. He did not walk up to the path and go, no, I'm not going to bother. He actually sowed, scattered his seed in each of these areas. Equal opportunity was given. 
And yet there was only one that truly produced good fruit. What does this whole thing mean? Well, you know, but let's read it because it is the word of God. And Jesus said to him, verse 13, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? You really got to get this one, boys. The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As they hear it, Satan comes and takes a word that was sown in them. Others like seed on rocky places, number two, hear the word and at once <gasps> receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, deceitfulness of wealth and desires of other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, however, are like seeds sown on good soil. They hear the word, they accept it, and they produce a crop 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. There's another parable that follows. We won't read it, but it talks about a farmer who planted a seed and it grows and the kingdom is like that. The basic principle, the concept of these stories is very simple. God intends for productivity to come from his promises. God intends the potential that he speaks because every word is an invitation. Potential speaks to bear prosperity and to be fruitful. But the level of productivity, the level of prosperity that comes is not ultimately dependent on the sower. It's not ultimately dependent on how good the word was. It's dependent upon the climate or the condition of the heart where that takes it in, the heart that takes it in. And I read this knowing that the Lord wanted me to speak on this. And I thought, you know, our church, both me individually and our church as a family, has had many Good prophetic promises spoken over us. I want to be the fourth heart. And everybody said, Amen. I want to be that one. And I thought, Lord, it must be pretty important to know what to do, if anything, to make sure I'm that one. Because that's the one that I really want to be. And so I read the story again. And I asked, Lord, how can I make sure that I have a fertile heart? And I read the story again. And he didn't say. Well, that's not helpful, is it? So I turned to Matthew 13, read it again. Doesn't say there either. It's in Luke. It's in Luke. This is why you've got three Gospels. There's three synoptics. It turned to Luke. I read it in Luke chapter 8. And again, Jesus doesn't say what makes a heart fertile. He doesn't say in the story. He just says, this is the condition. This is what the, it means. But he doesn't, doesn't give the key to how to get a fertile heart. And so I did what any good preacher does in this situation. I went to Google. And I'm like, <laughs> Google. And I started, well, that's actually true because you do want to learn from other saints. I'm like, well, what have other people said about this? And I read sermon after sermon and notes after notes and everyone just kind of regurgitated the story without answering the pivotal question, what, how do I get a fertile heart? How do I make sure that my, I mean, is it up to me or is it just fate? Are you just lucky to be a fourth person? What if I'm number one? What if I'm the hard person? There's nothing I can do about that. Is it fate? Or can I do something about the condition of my heart? Because as important as this parable is, Jesus doesn't say what I can do, if anything, to make sure that I have a fertile heart. So when the seed of his word comes to me, it finds a good climate. It finds good conditions to bear the fruit that God intends. And so I had preacher's block that day. I mean, you're in trouble. When the text doesn't explicitly say, when Google doesn't say, what do you do? Oh, yeah, pray. Okay, yeah, sorry. Of, of course, okay. So walk around the house, like, like, Lord, you're the teacher. I don't want to just regurgitate a story that everybody knows, okay? I want to know what, what, what do I encourage my people? about having a fertile heart. Is there something that we can do to ensure that our hearts are one of the fertile ones? Do you want to know? 
Come back tomorrow morning and Catherine's going to be speaking on that. <laughs> Good night. Let's go. All right. So I'm praying and I'm worshipping. I'm like, Lord, and I didn't really get anything. And I thought, well, you know what you do when you have preacher's block is you just need to focus on Jesus. Focused on him on worship. And I'm now thinking maybe I'll just avoid, okay, I'll just avoid that parable at the moment. And I'm going to, Colossians. I'm going to open Colossians because Colossians is all about Jesus. So I'm going to read Colossians. So, so I turned to Colossians chapter one and I thought, okay, I'm just going to focus on Jesus. And hopefully if I focus on Jesus, I'll discover something about what it means to have a pure heart. Lord, Colossians is all about you. I'm just going to read this book. Verse three. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you because we've heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love you have for all the saints. You have faith and a love that spring from the hope that's stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth. Ooh, that, that got my attention. You've heard about something in the word of truth. The gospel that has come to you. Oh, you mean the seed that came to these people? Okay, this gets my attention. I wasn't meant to be thinking about this, but it got my attention. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit. Well, this sounds like it's on track. It's bearing fruit and growing. Just as it's been doing among you ever since the day you heard it, and, and something else. You didn't just hear the word. You didn't just take the seed. You did something else. You acknowledged, you recognised, you truly understood God's grace. Two things these Colossians did. The seed of the Paul's preaching came to them. They heard that word and they acknowledged God's grace and that word found hearts and it made it fruitful and it made it growing, not only in them, but all over the world. With who? With people that receive the word and acknowledge God's grace. And that got my attention. I didn't read any further. I wasn't meant to discover that. I was meant to be looking at Jesus. <laughs> Understanding, and then it occurred to me, is it possible that the key to a fertile heart is recognising the grace of God, the reason the word of God was fruitful in them. So not just receive the word, but they recognize and understood God's grace. Is it possible? This is something of what Paul meant when he said to the Romans, listen, it's God's kindness that leads people to repentance. It's a word of repentance that comes, but it's the presence of his kindness that grips their heart, that then they respond to that word of repentance. It's God's kindness that leads people. It's God's grace. Could it be that recognizing or appreciating God's grace is the key to a fertile heart, that it is his very nature to bless and bestow his goodness on undeserving people, acknowledging that God is kind to the wicked and the ungrateful, acknowledging God's nature as good and gracious that opens the heart to receive his word and provides an environment for it to be fruitful. And then it occurred to me, hang on, there is a book. I do remember reading something in the New Testament about to Christians about not hardening their hearts. So maybe we do have a response. Maybe it's not just fate. No, no, no. There is something I can do. I can acknowledge God's grace. And I remembered the book of Hebrews that talks to the Christians over and over again. And it says, do not harden your heart. 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 Do you remember this? And it speaks there as it's quoting there. It speaks the psalm, which is Psalm 95. It says this, Today, if you hear his voice, if the seed of God's word comes to you, do not harden your heart. Give me an example, Paul. Or whoever wrote Hebrews. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they'd seen for what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation, and I said, They are people whose hearts go astray and have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, They shall never enter my rest. Interesting thing about this scripture 
is it talks about two incidences that are a year apart. God's people hardened their hearts in Exodus 17 when they came to Massa and Meribah. They hardened their hearts here. And then it wasn't till the spies went into Canaan over here in Numbers 13 that God swore, you will now never enter my rest. They began to harden their hearts here. And for some reason, their hearts were so hard a year later that God said, you can now not enter the promised land. Now that doesn't make sense to me. Because it makes sense to me that the longer you walk with God, the more you learn to trust him. But with these people, from this place where they began to harden their heart, Exodus 17, they walked with God for a year and their hearts just got harder and harder and harder until God said, that's enough. So what the heck happened in that 12 months? Turn aside. What happened in that 12 months that would harden their hearts and make that process so pivotal in this story. And quite simply, it's because over and over again, they just stopped acknowledging God's grace and instead focused on their own self-effort and self-righteousness, no longer focusing on God's ability to bless them and be good to them in and of himself, but their confidence was in their ability to be good instead. And so, I'm going to tell a little bit of that story. You know where I'm going, don't you? Book of Genesis, first 11 chapters, God speaks to the ancients, Enoch, Noah, Adam and Eve, ancient stories that builds towards a guy called Abram. God speaks to Abram and he says, mate, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. And you are going to be your blessing to the ends of the earth. And Abram said, okay. And he starts his journey with God. A couple of chapters later, as God's blessing him everywhere he goes, he meets a man called Melchizedek. He fights a battle okay, in the Valley of Sheba. And Melchizedek comes to him and says, guess what, Abram? You are being blessed by El Elyon, God Most High. It is that God that has given your enemies into your hand. So Abram, for the first time in his walk with God, heard the name of God announced. See, the ancient world, and Abram was no different, people used to worship multiple gods. Abram's father was a polytheist, so was Abram. He worshipped multiple gods. One day, one of those gods speaks to him, and so he follows that voice. Melchizedek then comes along and says, do you know the name of that God who's leading you, Abram? He is the God most high. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. And it is then that Abram says, for the first time, he utters God's name out of his own lips and says, ah, the Lord most high, I have lifted my hand to him. He is the God that is leading me. That, the very next thing that happens, Genesis 15, God comes to him. And the most profound thing happens. It says the word of Yahweh came to him in a vision and said. Stop there and think about that. The word of Yahweh came to him in a vision and said. Now, how can you see the word of the Lord? How can you have a vision of the word of Yahweh who then speaks to you? What did he see? The word of the Lord? Anyway, he has a vision. In a vision, the word of Yahweh speaks to him and says, I am your shield, your very great reward. And it is there for the very first time, God and Abram interact vocally and he is declared righteous. You see, Abram had a relationship with God for two chapters, but wasn't in a right relationship with God until he knew God's name. 
because it's only those who call upon the name of the Lord that are saved. And God didn't, he didn't know Abram's, God's name until Melchizedek came and showed him. The job of the royal priest is to reveal the name of God to people that God is already loving and leading and speaking to and say, you know the God that's been tracking you? His name's Jesus. His name's Yahweh. That is the God that's on your side. And so he speaks. And Abram now is righteous in God's eyes. God promises him, as you know, the story. He promises him, changes his name to Abraham. And he promises him to be a father. And he says, mate, this covenant that I've made with you is not just for you, but it's all your sons coming after you. And I'm going to give you a sign today so that you can remember this covenant for you and your sons. And it's the sign of circumcision. Like Noah's rainbow in the sky, that every time they saw it, it was a reminder of God's promise. Same word, sign. So every time Abram's sons would see this permanent mark on their body, they would be reminded of God's promises. I am a son of Abraham. And God is going to bless me because I'm Abraham's son. It's like a sign. It's like a wedding ring. Got my wedding ring on today. This isn't a requirement of marriage, but it is a reminder I'm married. I've got to explain it. I've got this other funny ring on my finger <coughs> that a friend gave me nine years ago. And I remember it was nine years ago because it's when I first came here. It's a beer opener. <laughs> and I started getting ready to come to the first Grace and Glory conference. And I'm like, I don't know these people. Should I wear that? And I just really felt yes, which is weird because in my church background that I come from, like you instantly have no, 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 you know. I thought I felt yes. I drive, I fly into Auckland because I preached there first before I came down here. Guy picks me up from the airport, Afrikaner guy, really conservative from an evangelical conservative church. He says, we sit down, we have coffee before their service up there. He says, I had a dream about you last night. I've never, never met this guy. I had a dream about you. I never have dreams. I have a dream about you. And he said, you were in our church and you had a bottle of blue sake and you opened it with a ring on your finger. And then you started serving it to our church. So it's really weird because I never have dreams. I'm like, dude, are you kidding? Do you know what I've got on my... He goes, no, no, I didn't see that. And I'm like, from that day, I put it... I haven't worn this thing for like two years, but I felt it was in my undie drawer when I was packing, right? <laughs> and... And I'm like, I want to wear that again because blue is the colour of eternity. It's a heavenly colour. And sake is a wine, but it's a foreign wine. It's like, oh, this tastes good, but it's a little bit different to what I'm used to. But, oh, it's nice. <laughs> and so that's a sign of a prophetic <laughs> promise for me. Stop distracting me. <laughs> he gives him the sign of circumcision. This sign will be for you. So that you can remember my promises every day, Abram's sons would see that sign and they know I'll be blessed because I'm Abram's kid. And so as you read the Scriptures, he then, of course, goes up, offers Isaac on the altar. God stops him, gives a ram in his place. And God says, I swear on oath, mate, all your descendants will be blessed because they're your sons. And as you read the rest of Genesis, Abram, Isaac and Jacob act like a bunch of ratbags. They lie, they cheat, they steal, they are deeply immoral and God keeps blessing them. And he blesses them and he blesses them and he blesses them, not on the basis of their obedience or their performance or their attitude. He blesses them because they're Abraham's kids. It was a covenant of grace that they received in faith. They were reminded every day when they went to the, you know what? And they were reminded of who they were. I'm blessed because I'm Abraham's sons. That's it. <laughs> At the end of Genesis, we've got the story, of course, of Josh, of what's his face? Joseph in Egypt, technically, dream coat, the whole thing. They get into Egypt and then after a couple of hundred years, the Egyptians between, become oppressing God's people and they cry out. And it says there that Yahweh heard the cries of his people. He encounters Moses in a burning bush and he says, mate, I want you to go rescue my people. Why are they my people? Well, he says in Deuteronomy, I didn't choose you because you're the biggest nation. I didn't choose you because you're the best looking nation. I chose you because I remember the covenant of love that I made with Abraham and because I love you and I'm faithful to my covenant, I rescue you. And he rescues them. You remember the story, the plagues come, plague after plague after plague. The plagues touch the Egyptians, but they don't touch God's people. Flies come on the whole land and suddenly the flies buzz across <laughs> Egypt and they hit this invisible force field poof, where God's people live and they turn back because the flies were all over the Egyptians, but God's people were protected. 
The livestock of the Egyptians died. God's people's livestock survived. Darkness came over the whole land of Egypt. And yet where God's people lived, it was light for three days straight. God distinguished His covenant people because He is faithful to the covenant in play at the time. God is faithful and He distinguished. He says, they're my people because they're Abraham's kids. The last plague, as you know, is the Passover. Passover lamb's blood goes over the frame, door frames of the home. And Moses says the same word in Hebrew is used for Noah and Abram. He says that blood is a sign. It's not a sign for God as if he forgot where, which house his kids lived in. He said it's a sign for you so that every year you can perform this and you can remember this night. It's a sign, like a wedding ring. You can remember that incredible event. You can remember that word that God gave you when he was gracious to you and blessed you and released you from Egypt. And so they come out of Egypt. They are laden with gold and silver and blessing and healing that they did not deserve. God blesses them. And they come to the banks of the Red Sea and the people complain. They whinge and they whine and they say, "Eh, why did you bring us out of Egypt, God? This is all disaster. This is going to end terribly. And God hears their whinging. And he parts the Red Sea for them. They get to the other side. They start journeying with God. And after three days, it says they got thirsty. And God brings them to a rock. He hears their whinging. He hears their whining. He hears their complaining. And where the bitter waters were, he made them sweet. And he gives them fresh water. The next chapter, they complain again. They whinge, they whine, they murmur, they complain about food. They're hungry. They want to go back to Egypt. And God says, I hear your complaining. And I'm going to give you food every day. Every day, he blesses them with fresh manna, fresh manna, fresh manna. And he says, I'm going to give you a bit of a test to test your obedience, just so that you know who you are. I know who you are, but just so you know. I'm going to test you. Don't collect it on the seventh day. Don't go out. Don't store any overnight. And God, he institutes the Sabbath. And God's people blatantly disobey him. They break the Sabbath. And God blesses them with food the next day. The next day, the next day, the next day. Moses gets really angry. He gets ticked off because the stuff actually stinks. Because there are natural consequences to disobeying God. God knows better than what you know. He's a bit smarter than than us. Okay, So when he says something, it's good to do it. There'll be natural consequences if you don't. But the point is this. God doesn't curse them. Natural things take their course. But God doesn't punish them. He keeps providing for them and it never says he got angry with them. Exodus 16. Then they come to Exodus 17 and they come to a place where, again, there's no water to drink. And rather than looking back and saying, my goodness, hasn't God been awesome to us? Hasn't he been really generous? God's people whinge and whine and complain again. And then something else happens. This is the place where they began to harden their hearts. And they not only complain about being thirsty, they also say, is the Lord really for us? They begin to doubt and question God's character. They're not just complaining about their situation. They begin to question, is God really for us. Hebrews talks about the deceitfulness of sin. What was so deceitful with Adam in the Adam and Eve story? Is God really as good to you as he says he is? He's holding back from you. That tree that he's told you not to go anywhere near, it's awesome. It's great. God's holding back. He's holding back his goodness from you. He's not as good as you think he is. He's tricking you. He's deceiving you. God's character is called into question. And this is what happens in Exodus 17. They begin to harden their hearts and call God's character into question. And so as you know, in Exodus 19, he brings them to a mountain called Sinai. He says, Moses, come up here. I'm going to give you a deal. I'm going to give you a covenant where if your people obey, then I'll bless them. But if they disobey, I'll curse them. Moses comes back to the people and he says, what do you think? If we disobey, God will bless us. But if we disobey, God will curse us. And the people say, 
we will do everything God says. The very same people that two chapters earlier could not even pick up bread properly are now so arrogant in their self-righteousness that they say, yes, we can do everything God ever says. Moses goes up the mountain with the elders. He comes back and then he goes back up again and he gets the law and he writes down the covenant of the law. In fact, what he does is he sprinkles the people with blood. You know the story? Sprinkles the people with blood. Said, this is a covenant now. It's not a handshake deal. It's a covenant. God will bless you only if you obey. But if you disobey, he's going to curse you. And everyone says, no worries, mate. We are awesome. That sounds good to us. He goes up the mountain. He comes back. After, after 40 days, sorry, he's up on the mountain. He's got the tablets in his hands. And when he's up there, having no idea what's happening down here, God says to him on the mountain, your people are worshipping a golden calf and I'm going to kill them. Moses is like, no, Lord, you can't do that. They're, they're Abraham's kids. Remember, Abraham's kids that you bless despite how they behave. God says, no, nah, I'm going to kill them. Go down there, see what's going on. Moses goes down, Aaron, the priests, they're running wild. And, he's, and Moses says, what are you doing? If you're for the Lord, come to me. Aaron is the first to line up and say, yes, bro, we're with you. The guy who led them into worship, the biggest hypocrite of a lot of them, says, we're on your side, Moses. Moses says, take your sword. Takes his sword. He runs it through. 3,000 of their own brothers, 3,000 of their sisters, 3,000 of their cousins die by the sword that day. Aaron comes back to Moses with blood all over him. And we just killed 3,000 of our own family members. And God says, you know what? That guy makes a great priest. The guy who's going to represent this covenant is the hypocrite that says out of his mouth, that, worship, that, that, that encourages people to do the wrong thing, that behaves wrong, says the right thing, and is willing to judge people for the very thing he does. He will be the priest of this covenant. And from that day on, God strikes his people with a plague. After they build a tabernacle, they leave, as you know, the trumpets are sounded. And three days after moving on, hardened their hearts here into a, into a covenant with God here. Three days later, the trumpet sounds. And they keep moving on. After three days, what do they do? They complain. And it says there, because they complain in Numbers 11, God sends fire from heaven and kills a bunch of them. Soon after in that chapter, it says they wail about the food that God's given them. And what, are they, what does God do? He sends a plague of meat. He sends a plague and people die that day. God's people die of a plague. In Numbers 12, Miriam murmurs against Moses. God brings him into the tent. She gets struck with leprosy. And figuratively speaking, God says, it's as if I spat in her face. And they had to stay there for seven days. What are God's people doing? They're breaking the Sabbath. They're talking against Moses. And God's judging them and punishing them and cursing them. On this side of the mountain, they broke the Sabbath. They complained against Moses. And God kept loving them and providing for them and supplying for them and meeting their needs. And never once got angry with them. Why? Because here at Mount Sinai, this whole relationship changed. They entered into a new form of relationship with God that was based on how good they were. Not based on understanding how awesome God is. Remember how good God is? He rescued us from Egypt. We didn't deserve it. He loved us. He cared for us. He lavished His grace on us. God is so good. Hallelujah. God is so good. Hallelujah. Now they get in and they go, we are so good. We'll base our relationship with God on how good we are. We're so good. We're so good. Oh, we're terrible. No, we'll be better. No, we're terrible. No, we'll be better. And they enter into this relationship with God that is based on their performance and their goodness. What begins to happen? By this time, their focus is no longer on God's grace, God's undeserved goodness for them. Their focus is on their own ability. So by the time, here we are, back at the 10 spies, they now go into the promised land. They come back and their hearts are not fertile. God says to them, go into my promised land. It's a good land. I will defeat the giants. Here's the seed of my word into your heart. And it produced no fruit because those hearts had been hardened by legalism. 
what had happened? Over this one-year period, their eyes started to get off the goodness of God, the grace of God, the undeserved kindness of God. And they entered into a system where all they could see was their own performance and sin. That's why Leviticus is so hard to read because it's all about how terrible our sin is, how terrible their sin was, how terrible their sin was, how terrible their sin was. Romans actually says the reason God gave this covenant was to increase sinning. It actually led to increasing sinning because that's all they became focused upon. It sounds like an oxymoron, but it's an incredible thing. Their confidence was now no longer in God's goodness. Their confidence was in their goodness because everybody has faith in something. Oh, I don't have faith. Yeah, you do. You, everyone has confidence in something. Over here, they had confidence in the fact that God had promised them his grace that they just received in faith because they're Abraham's kids and they're walking in the promises of God. And here's a heart in their heart for a year over and over again, harder and harder and harder because they forgot the goodness of the God who rescued them undeservedly. Their focus was now on their performance and how good they were to be. And their hearts just got harder and harder. And so this is why. In the book of Hebrews, coming back to Hebrews now, bring this to a close. This is why in the book of Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews is written to a people with this lineage. Yeah? The whole book of Hebrews that says, do not harden your hearts, Christian Hebrews. The whole book of Hebrews is written to people who from chapter 1 are told, God spoke to our fathers in many times in various ways. They knew these stories. They're not like you lot. They would have known those 10 names like that, you know. <laughs> they knew these stories. These were their ancestors. These were their stories that they told. He said, God spoke to our ancestors. Over chapters 2, 3, 4 and 5, he speaks to them about the superiority of what Jesus has done. Jesus is superior to Moses. Hello? Jesus is superior to Melchizedek. Jesus is superior to the angels that mediated this whole deal. Jesus is superior. In chapter 6, he says, let's leave the elementary teachings of our childhood and go on to maturity. This foundation that we've had over 1,400 years, 1,500 years, let's leave those foundations and move on to maturity. In chapter 7, 8, 9 and 10, he talks about the fulfillment. Over here, we had a physical mountain. Now we have a glorious heavenly mountain that we come to. Over here, we used to worship with the blood of bulls and goats. Now we worship in a superior way. He says, listen, don't go back to the old. Don't go back to the old. Like Lot, who, okay, Lot, who was told not to look back on Sodom. Don't look back. There's no life left for you here. He talks in chapter 11 about the men and women of faith who did not look back who when God spoke to them, they stayed their course. They said, promised land, we can go there. We believe, we have confidence. We're gonna fix our eyes forward. We're not gonna go back. We're not gonna be those who shrink back to the old. We're gonna keep our eyes focused on the future, which is why then in chapter 12, he talks about the cloud of witnesses that is cheering on this new community to say, listen, keep going, keep going, keep going. Don't look back. Don't go back to this kind of system. Don't look back to the righteousness that trusts in your own ability. Don't look back at seeing how awesome you are, how terrible you are, how awesome you are, how terrible you are. No, no, no. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured a punishing cross so that this whole form of relationship of God could be made redundant and obsolete. And he says in Hebrews, it will soon disappear. They still had it. Those first century Hebrews could still go back to that system. But he said, don't go back, don't go back, don't go back. And so in chapter 13, as he finishes Hebrews saying, do not harden your hearts like our ancestors did. He says this in chapter 13, verse 9, closing the letter. He says, don't be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings because it is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. Where did we start today? The soil of our heart. The soil. How do I have a first? Lord, how do these Hebrews have a strengthened, good heart? Your heart is strengthened by grace. So as God speaks His Word to you, it'll find good soil. Your responsibility is to focus and never let go of His grace.
Is this why in the Gospels, when Jesus said to two people that he healed, he said, I've never seen such faith that you guys have demonstrated. Both of those people, a centurion soldier and a Canaanite woman, both were people who were not Israelites. They didn't grow up in this system of I'll be good and God will be good. I will be bad and God will judge me. They didn't grow up in this system. They had faith in Jesus's goodness for them. And Jesus said, I'm not seeing faith like this that I've seen in my own people. Why? Because my own people have been hardened over the years by this system, this old covenant system. As a woman comes to worship Jesus and she cries over her feet, his feet and she worships him with her hair. Jesus goes to Simon and he says, mate, you haven't even given me hand sanitizer as I came in here today. Why has this woman worshipped me so extravagantly? Why is she so committed? Why has the word that's come to her borne such incredible fruit and gratitude? He said, it's because she understands that she's been forgiven of incredible sin. Why? The more you make of the incredible gift of forgiveness, the more softer your heart becomes and worship naturally flows. When Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he encourages them very strictly, 2 Thessalonians, to obey the Word of God. Do what God has told us. And then he blesses them at the end, 2 Thessalonians 3, 5. And he says, May the Lord lead your hearts into a full understanding an expression of the love of God. I can say, I can speak all the words in the world to you. Seed, 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 useless. Unless the Lord leads your heart into a full understanding of His love. Why? Because it's not just hearing the word. It's also acknowledging God's love and grace. Catherine mentioned Peter. It's 2 Peter 1 today. He encourages his readers to mature to add to their faith, brotherly kindness and love and patience and long-suffering, etc., etc., etc. And he says, if you grow in these qualities, you will be effective and productive. That sounds like good soil to me. Who wants to be effective and productive? Come on. I, don't, I want to be one of the two that enter in, that live in that promised land. How do we be effective and productive? Well, he says this, if you add these qualities, you'll be effective and productive. But if you don't add these qualities, here's the reason why. You've forgotten you've been cleansed from your sin. You have made light of the grace of God. It's Peter's way of saying, listen, those who make light of salvation will actually stop maturing. Gideon, mate, come on. You're doing another grace series. Isn't it about time we moved on? Isn't it about time we matured? and got beyond hearing about God loving us? Isn't it about time we matured on from the cross? Isn't it about time we matured on from making such a big deal about how awesome salvation is, about how awesome righteous we are? No, 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 no. If you forget you've been cleansed of your past sin, you're going to end up with this mistake. You're going to stop maturing. You're going to stop adding these qualities because like that woman, it's when you make big of the forgiveness of God in your life that out of that heart of gratitude, that heart is prepared for the seed of God's promises to come to you. That's why in Corinthians, when Paul writes and addresses very serious issues over and over again, division, getting drunk at communion, sleeping with temple prostitutes, Lord's Supper, very serious kind of issues here in the Corinthian church. He deals with all the issues after 14 chapters, the stuff they've asked him to talk about. And then he starts chapter 15 and he says, now finally, I want to talk to you about what I want to talk to you about. I actually want to tell you what's on my heart for you now that I've addressed all your issues. And here's what I want to remind you of. I want to remind you of the gospel. I want to remind you of the gospel, the fact that Jesus died for your sin. He says that in verse 3, what is most important, that Jesus died for your sin. Paul emphasized to believers the importance of being reminded of the gospel. Because there is a place of abundantly more. There are promises and seeds of God's word. God is an equal opportunity sower that he promises people. 
but the fruitfulness and ability to walk in those promises, there is a responsibility. There are a number of responsibilities, but here's where it starts. The responsibility we have, a fertile heart that acknowledges God's grace, Colossians 1. You heard the word of God and you acknowledged the grace of God in all its truth. And that's why for years and years, nine years, Rob's come eight years and he keeps saying, listen, the revelation of grace is like a spiral staircase. You keep coming to the same point, the same truth, but every time you come, you're at a higher level and you see it again and you're at a higher level and you see it again and you're at a higher level. That's why the angels never, never, never grow tired of just circling the throne. I see a different facet. We can see facets of God's grace. The, 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 the wonderful truth that God makes us who we cannot be and causes us to do what we cannot do without Him. See, when God's promises come to you, your first thought shouldn't be, but I'm not good enough. Your first thought should be, God, you are so good. I receive this because you are so good. And your grace makes me what I cannot be on my own and enables me to do what I could never do on my own. So as we take the Lord's Supper, we remember the gospel and we proclaim his death till he comes. That's why Grace and Glory Confidence is still worth having after nine years. Hey, we're not in a grace swamp we're in the revelation of the very nature of God, what He has offered us legally, what He has made us literally, so that when we see the land of milk and honey and we encounter the bulls and the bees that are there, we can say, no, 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 we can certainly do it. We can do it because we know grace is on our side. The God who gives us what we do not deserve, He qualifies us for all the promises of blessing. He qualifies us and He empowers us to be what we cannot be and to do what we cannot do without Him. I want to encourage you as we close tonight, never stop acknowledging God's grace. Never stop acknowledging His goodness. And you can start that every day. Every day you can wake up and you can put on your podcast, you can turn on your news and I guarantee you this week there's only one word that's going to be coming out of that screen. Or you can start your day, focus heavenward, look at the cross and say, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you like the Passover lamb. I didn't do anything to deserve it. I'm just in a house and the blood of the lamb's over this house. And I thank you. I thank you. I thank you. Attitude of gratitude for the grace of God. So when his word comes to you, it finds good soil. Put your hand on your heart. Now, wherever you think that is. Is it here? Is it here? Lord, I thank you that at the new birth experience, you gave us a heart of flesh. A heart that is malleable. A heart that is organic. A heart that is alive to you. And today, I say I'm so grateful for your goodness and grace. I do not grow tired and weary of hearing the good news that Jesus loves me. This I know. For he died to show me so. Father loves me. This I know. Gave his son to show me so. Spirit loves me. This I know. Pours His grace into my soul. Lord, I thank You for the outpouring of Your grace, the impartation of Your undeserved goodness to us. We acknowledge Your presence because Your grace is not just a theological concept. Your grace is an ever-present reality and we breathe it. Breathe you in deep tonight. In Jesus' name. May the Lord bless 
us. The Lord will keep us. The Lord will cause his face to shine upon us and he will grant us his shalom. Nothing missing. Nothing defective. Whole. Protected. Prosperous. Fruitful. For the king. Eternal. Jesus, you're beautiful.